God, we, uh, we do pray and we ask by faith that you would, you would soften the hardened soul of our hearts that where maybe the difficulty this week, the trials of life, and even our own unbelief would cause us to be unable to hear your voice. Uh, would you supernaturally this morning, through the work of your spirit, through your word, change our hearts, help us to be soft to the things of God, help us to be eager to hear your voice through your revealed word to us, and thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us life and breath to be able to sing your praises. It's such a joy to be able to lift our voices and in some small measure to reflect the reality of heaven, where one day, along with the angels, we'll never cease to sing your praises. You are worthy of every word, of every song, every chorus, every melody, every utterance from our mouth. Uh, you are worthy to be praised. Thank you for the gift of salvation through Jesus, and I pray that you'd show us this morning, uh, even as we maybe see our own sin in different ways through this particular text, that you'd show us the glory of Christ and the wonder of grace again. Amaze us at grace again, please, Lord. For the sake of our increasing joy and for the sake of our usability in your hands in this world, as long as we're here, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you are doing well. And you can grab your Bibles and go to the book of James. We'll be uh, continuing our study through the book of James. We'll be in chapter 4 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 as we look at, uh, in a continued way, the, uh, having faith in action. And so um, before uh, I jump into God's Word, this may seem like a little bit of an interruption, but I, I rarely take a moment to be selfish from the microphone, but I am going to take just a second and completely leverage the fact that I have the microphone and you can't do anything about it. Because um, it's my wife's birthday today. And <laughs> it's, it's also Debbie's birthday today. I just found out. So, but I, um, I just want to take a second um, and just for my wife, just express without really looking at her, uh, my gratitude for her. In many ways, as a man, I am who I am because of her. Uh, in many ways, as a man, I, I am where I am because of her, and, and I thank God for you, babe. Happy birthday. Happy 21st. <laughs> yeah, I love you. Happy birthday. Oh, man. As we, as we dive into this text this morning, there's, there's going to be some difficult things for us, um, as is the custom a little bit in the book of James. James doesn't mince words, and he comes out swinging in a lot of ways as it relates to our own struggle with sin. And one of the things we're going to think a lot about is just the presence of conflict in our life. And so years ago, uh, as I read this week, there's a large statue of Christ constructed high in the Andes Mountains between uh, the countries of Chile and, and Argentina, right on the border in the Andes Mountains. And shortly after the statue was put in place, the Chileans began to protest that they had been slighted because the statue had its back turned to Chile. And it was facing Argentina. But a Chilean newspaperman saved the day in his editorial that not only satisfied the people but made them laugh. He simply said, the people of Argentina need more watching over by Jesus. <laughs> and so there's a funny illustration in that picture of a statue. And there's, there's two ways in which this connects with our text. One is 
the fact that when Christ is present, there can still be conflict between people. And so the very first thing we're going to see in this text is a question asked that we can't disconnect from the reality of this is to believers. Like these are questions asked to scattered Jewish believers. So even when Christ is present, tension and conflict exists and words like quarreling and things like that. So that's the first thing. Even when Christ stands in our midst, conflicts are still present. The second is this, that we are often guilty of blaming things outside of ourselves for the conflict in our lives. And I heard it said this way from a poet this week, my biggest problem is thinking I am not the biggest problem. Right? It preaches, right? And so, and that's our, that is our challenge, right? It's our, our challenge is not believing that all the conflict we endure and face in a, in a given day or in relationships, that it's not due firstly to the economy or to your spouse or your children or your job or traffic, this or that. My biggest problem is not believing that somehow, not believing that, my, that I am my biggest problem. And so James is going to kind of uncover that for us in several different ways this morning. But let's read the entire section we're going to study, James 4, 1 through 10, and then we'll go back and make some observations before we take the Lord's Supper together. Chapter 4, verse 1, this is God's word for us this morning. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealous, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it's says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So James, once again, uses comparison and contrast as we move from, if you were with us last week, the end of what we know is chapter 3. These chapter breaks aren't inspired. They were put in there by the translators. And so at the end of chapter 3, we have this picture given of how Wisdom from above yields a righteous harvest in the lives of those who use and wield and possess godly, biblical, right wisdom. And so if you look back at the end of chapter 3, just real quickly, the last verse, and it says, and, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what we just read is very much connected in that flow of thought. Because he goes from this 
picture of peace and righteousness present in those who use and possess biblical sound wisdom. And he asked the question, why are there so many fights and quarrels among you? Like, why is there a lack of peace in your midst? If peace comes from godly wisdom, then why is it that you are fighting so much among yourself? And so it's very easily connected to what we looked at last week. But the fighting, the quarrels and wars, they flow from selfish pleasures and prideful pursuits. These two things, prideful pursuits and selfish pleasures, destroy peace. So wisdom from above reaps righteousness and peace. This wisdom from below, this devilish, earthly, demonic wisdom, we talked about that last week, that really is saturated in selfish ambition and pride, destroys the peace that God provides. And so the answer to the question that James asked, the you he's referring to is those in the church, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you Is it not this, or it is this, that your passions are at war within you? The answer to his question is there's war within you. The war within you is what's leading to the wars among you. Selfish pleasures and passions are like weeds that choke out the the fruit of God's word in our lives. And that's the picture given in Luke chapter 8. You probably heard the parable of the sowers, a parable of the soils, there's certain soil that the word of God falls on and there's different reactions and ultimately some prove to not be fruitful because of various things and some grow and be fruitful. And one of the unfruitful soils says this, Luke eight fourteen, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures, it's our word, passions, pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And so if you can picture it this way in your own heart, it's like your passions, your, your personal, individual, selfish, prideful passions, that's all of us. I'm not pointing at you. The Word of God is pointing at you. So all of us that are prideful, selfish passions, those things are like this silent battalion internally waging war against your soul. That's pretty substantial language, right? And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says it this way. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as those called out of the world but still living in the world, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so one of the things I put in my notes that I just want to say just briefly is I think one of the things that happens in this text, this message, is that it creates awareness of the the difficulty and the trial within of our own personal selfish passions. So it makes makes us aware, but also calls us to abstain from those very things. Awareness and abstinence is present in this text, is present in the Bible. So I'm going to, by God's grace, through this word, make us aware of various ways that our selfish passions wage war, and then we're going to be called really the whole way through to abstain from those things. In verse 2, James goes on to say, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, I'm assuming this is hyperbole. I'm assuming there weren't people actually murdering one another in the church. We're going to go with that. There's no evidence that that was actually happening. 
But James has been, so, but if, but if you think from James's viewpoint, if you go all the way back to his half-brother Jesus, you might remember in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus equated what to murder? Anger. And so you might get angry with your fellow believer, and maybe James is kind of pulling on that picture of ultimately you desire and do not have, so you murder, you hate, maybe is what he has in view. But what is clear is this, our passions damage our relationships with other people. If we let them run roughshod in our hearts, in our relationships, those passions will damage our relationships. And we all could silently say, I know this to be true. Yes and amen. I know it to be true even this morning. Sitting right next to the person that bears witness to the fact that this is true. That my selfishness, my selfish passions and desires damage the relationships that I have with other people. And in our pride and selfishness, we will use other people as stepping stones to pursue our passions. When we desire but we don't have, when we covet and can't obtain, what do we tend to do? We, we tend to take matters into our own hands. Instead of operating with love, our hearts will be overtaken by hate and envy and jealousy. Instead of seeking peace, we'll argue and fight to get our way. And as one commentator put it, we'll seek self at the expense of our neighbor, of our spouse, of our kids, our roommates. We'll seek self at the expense of other people. And we're all guilty of that. These selfish desires wage war within us, against our soul. And the tragedy of it all is the cannot of coveting. And here's what I mean. Because you, you can covet for the rest of your life and your soul will never be satisfied by what you gain. You can hate on your way to trying to pursue your passions, but your flesh will never be satisfied with what you get in the end. And this is a tragedy of, of pursuing sinful pleasures and passions. They're not Christ. They won't satisfy you in the end. So you may get angry. It may give you a momentary sense of validation, but they're not ultimately going to satisfy you. Sinful desires will never reach a point of satisfaction. We may reach what we initially pursue, but it will never be enough. There's an interesting addition to James's thought here. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's really interesting the contrast between these two. You know, murdering and fighting to get things versus ask. Ask for them. There's this built-in kind of confrontation in our own heart that's, okay. Like when I, when I feel these selfish things wage war against me, God's prescription is ask. And this, is, this could be a sermon, and it has been many sermons and books written on this one passage. You do not have because you do not ask. There's two lessons on prayer in this brief verse. You do not have because you do not ask. And here's what, what I'd say just really briefly, powerfully on this principle of prayer. There will be things in our lives that we do not have simply because we have not asked for them. As you think about your own prayer life, that should really challenge all of us. 
I had one brother of mine, I've shared this a couple times over the years in sermons, but I'll share it again because I think it's effective to kind of challenge us to pray more. It challenges me every time I think about it. But he, he posed the question this way. He says, if, if God were to show up this afternoon at your house and answer every single prayer that you prayed the last week, what would happen in the world? What would happen in your life? You don't have because you don't ask. And that's the first thing that challenges us in James's perspective as it relates to prayer. The second is really dark because he's essentially saying that even as you pray, your pride is at work. Even as you pray, you are battling your own selfishness. Sometimes we don't have because we don't ask, and sometimes we don't have because we ask with wrong motives. And we might spend what we get on our own passions, fueling the same thing that wars against our soul. But the wildfire of our selfishness rages even when we pray. We're guilty of praying with pride so we can get what we want. The idols we covet and pursue, they barnacle themselves to our hearts so firmly that even as we ask God for things, like we're not trying to get God in the end, we're trying to go to God to get things. And even this week, like I'm guilty of this, we had just, we had another car issue this week, which just seems like the perpetual thorn in our flesh. And I struggled, I was like, Lord, it's like just when we feel like car things are things of the past. You know, we have this, this issue with our vehicle. And the reason I bring that up is because what I go to is, God, would you please give me something? Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't ask God for particular things. We should because we may not have them if we don't ask. But if our motive is to fulfill or subdue our selfish, prideful passions, to promote security that's not found in God, it's found in things, then we're missing the mark as it relates to prayer. But prayer has a role in, pr- in killing our pride and selfishness. You see that in, in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus instructed his disciples on how to pray, right? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. There's a pursuit of the things of God that wins out over and against our own selfish pleasures and pursuits. So James levies his charge against the ones who in their prideful, selfish passions have dismantled peace and hurt people. And he says this, you are guilty of spiritual adultery. You're spiritual adulterers. And I can't really soften this because he means what he says. Throughout the Old Testament, the marriage relationship is often used as a picture between God and the nation of Israel. Here's just a couple brief remarks from the book of Ezekiel. They're all over the place in the Old Testament. But just listen to the language as Ezekiel's levying charges against the nation of Israel for their unfaithfulness to God. He calls them in Ezekiel 16.32, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. It goes on in chapter 23, verse 37. They have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. With their idols, they have committed adultery. And marriage continues to illustrate the relationship between God and his people in the New Testament. It's not just in the old, right? The church as the bride and Christ as the groom, we're going to sing a song to close our service this morning that depicts that like a bride waiting for her groom. We want to be a church ready for 
the return of our groom, namely Christ himself. And as we, as we read this, and as we go to take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, like we have to reckon with the fact, and just please hear me on this, especially if you're new here this morning, and maybe you're unsure of your relationship with Jesus, you have to understand that you have been unfaithful to God. You and I, all of us, have been unfaithful to the God who made us. And so in that sense, we are very much guilty of adultery spiritually. That's the point that James is making. No surprise when the bride welcomes in a stranger instead of her husband. It destroys the fabric of fidelity in that covenant relationship. It's absolutely disastrous. And a husband is appropriately jealous for the love of his wife and vice versa. That's what James goes on to say in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So it seems at this point, James isn't quoting a particular passage, but summarizing a picture in the Bible. Namely, that God is a jealous God and he yearns to have all of his people. God's holy jealousy is a part of his character and it flows from his passion for his glory to be promoted and preserved, get this, in you, in us. His jealousy is motivated by preserving and promoting his glory and his fame through you and through me, through us as his people. He's jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his name. The Christian in the New Testament is depicted as the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the very presence of God. So God himself dwells within his people and his intent and desire is for his presence to infiltrate and impact every square inch of his dwelling place. Every nook and every cranny, every word and every thought shaped and affected by the presence of Almighty God in his temple, his little temples, his people. In Exodus 20, verse 5, it depicts this and captures it. You shall not bow down to idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14 says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. William Barclay said it this way. He says, The idea is that God loves men and women, obviously, with such a passion that he cannot bear any other love within the hearts of men. And I want to take a little bit of a risk here. I'm going to read you a section from what I'll call a poem by Shailen. It's called The Jealous One. And it's actually a hip-hop song, but it's a poem. And it's about this reality, and it's really powerful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reserve. I'm not going to wrap this for you as much as, <laughs> as, much as I'm tempted to. But I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it slowly. And please don't miss it in the, in the cuteness of rhyme Please capture the content because it very much depicts what we're talking about in this text. It says this. 
It says, most of the time, human jealousy will hurt you, but when it comes to God, his jealousy is a virtue. One of his awesome perfections surely thunders his law and protects his glory. He gave, gave us the gift of the marriage relationship to acquaint us with a faint taste of this. A wife for her husband or husband for wife, the only time jealousy is right in this life. I couldn't think of much worse if I tried than a dude who smirks if you flirt with his bride. So tell me, what kind of God would he be if he wasn't bothered to see idolatry? Is God just supposed to laugh and withhold his wrath when he's replaced by a golden calf? But we say, I don't worship a golden calf. Well, for us, it's self and sex and loads of cash. Atrocious paths. We still don't know the half of how these things provoke his holy wrath. So we stand in awe and wonder how come God took his jealous anger out on his son. So all those who trust him can see like we're supposed to see and be forgiven of our spiritual adultery. Family, the reason I read that is to capture some of the emotion present in jealousy. That God is jealous. If you're a Christian in this room, God is jealous for his spirit within you. He wants his spirit to affect every single thing. That's what this book is about. The Bible, but the book of James. That we're called to not just hear the word of God and log it away as some principle to revisit some time but we're to be doers of the word, right? We're to be those who are shaped by the word of God and our faith is reflected in our actions and in this way we're supposed to align our lives with the spirit of God. And, and maybe, maybe I can just pause for a second here because it's right for us to feel sad over our sin and we'll get back to that in just a moment. But if you're in this room, and maybe you've been to this church several times. Maybe you've been to church your whole life. But deep down inside, you know that this does not reflect your life. The Spirit of God has not grabbed a hold of your heart, made you new, given you a heart for the things of heaven, ripped your hands off the things of this world, and caused you to love Jesus more than you love the things of this life. If that's not you, then let me just commend to you to look through me to this cross. That lyric in that song, that the, the jealousy of God, his holy anger and jealousy was poured out on his son. The wonder of the Christian message is that Jesus, as he hung on the cross, was treated as if he lived your sinful life, your adulterous life. He was treated as a rebel and a common thief and executed in your place. So that one day, when you meet God face to face, you can be considered righteous if you look to him by faith. That's it. Wonderfully, profoundly it. And if that's you, and if you need Jesus Christ, we all need him. But if you need him in a saving way, make today the day. Because you have no guarantee for tomorrow. Don't deceive yourself into thinking you have endless tomorrows to, to pursue the things of God. Let him pursue you today. And run to him for forgiveness because he's the only place it can be found. Jesus is the only person in whom it can be found. And this verse 6, when we're confronted by our sin, it doesn't get a whole lot better than this. This one 
simple statement, but he gives more grace. God gives more grace. This is one of those but God moments in the Bible. As you feel the magnitude of your selfish passions, waging war and having success in your life and you not resisting them at all, when you're confronted by that, be comforted by these words. God gives more grace. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is so much more. And all my selfish ambition, God gives more grace. For all the moments of prideful pursuit, he gives more grace. For the countless times I've sought self at the expense of my family, of others, God gives more grace. For the darkness of my coveting heart, he gives more grace. For my selfish prayers, he gives more grace. And for my spiritual adultery, he gives more grace. Thanks be to God for his gift in Jesus Christ. And the pathway to God's grace is very clearly humility. Humility. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, it, the scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I preach this in 1 Peter when we journey through 1 Peter. I'm just increasingly convinced if you set your life on this promise, it will change everything about your world. It'll change everything about your heart. It'll change everything about your relationships. And that is not hyperbole. If you position yourself as a follower of God to be a recipient of grace, how can it not change everything about you? Humble yourself before God and he'll give you more grace. Set yourself against his face in your pride. You'll get nothing but his opposition. Set your life on that promise and that reality. And I believe it'll change everything about your life. Pride will always be the source of fights and quarrels and wars within you and around you. Worse yet, that same pride ushers in the opposition of God towards you. And we can in this section be like, well, where's, how does this humility connect to grace? And I don't know if any of you men can relate to this. I'm sure your wives can. But there's this thing that apparently has been dubbed like man vision. Anybody understand what that is? Like, so a man goes looking for something and he tends not to find it, but then someone can come right behind it and find it right where it was supposed to be. Any of you guys guilty of that? So in my home, it's called like man eyes or man vision. Like we tend to look around or like over the top. We just, but we don't see it. It's sitting right there. I see some of your households who resonate with what I'm talking about. But it's man vision. Like we just, for some reason, we're, <laughs> we, don't, we don't see it. We look past it, over it, around it, but we don't find it. But James is saying here, you will not find the grace of God. Hear me on this. You might wonder where to look for the grace of God, but you will not find it looking around or over the top of or past the path of humility. It will always come through that path. The grace of God is found there. God isn't merely opposed to just pride in general. He's opposed to the proud person. When we're following our prideful passions, he's opposed to us. As we surrender to our selfish ambitions, God is opposed to us. As we disregard others to obtain our desires, God is opposed to us. But the location of God's grace 
It's the place where peace is restored is in the seat of humility. The life and posture of humility is where grace is found. And I want to close with these thoughts from James that really, to me, are the expression of humility. What does humility look like practically in response to everything we've heard so far? Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It seems to harken back to the, the jealousy of God for the Spirit of God within us. We wants it to work in every single area, and the call is if it's not working in every single area, if you're disobeying God in certain corners of your life, the right response is to surrender to God. Humility surrenders to God. Complete, entire, whole person submission to God. Pride obeys and is subject to selfish priorities and passions. Humility obeys and is subject to the priorities and passions of God. And humility, far from being passive, is actively fighting against selfish ambitions and sinful pleasures. And I think it's good for us to ask the question. You think about your own life, maybe the areas that you're thinking about as we talk about areas of selfish gain and prideful self-promotion. The question would be this, is are you fighting against those things? Are you fighting against your sin? And humble submission to God with the power of God, with the word of God in your hand, the people of God by your side, are you fighting against your sin? Fight. You have everything you need for life and godliness. Through the resurrection power of Christ within you, fight. Fight against those things. You don't have to submit to them as your master anymore. That's the beauty of the resurrection. Like you have a new master. God holds a title to your life and he gives you power to do the very thing he commands you to do. So fight with the power of heaven. Are you putting up a fight against your selfish passions? Are you putting up resistance to the war within your members? Is it a battle? Are you fighting? Humility surrenders to God. Verse 8. Humility draws near to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a whole lot that could be said here, but I don't want to disconnect it from just the flow of thought. The humility is expressed in drawing near to God. Drawing near to God involves cleansing your hands and purifying your hearts. Much of what we'll do as we take communion this morning. So this nearness isn't so much like a spatial nearness as it is a spiritual nearness to God. And if you've read much of the Old Testament, you know that as the, the Old Testament people of God and Israel, as they set up, as God had them set up a structure for worship, one of the things you see really quickly is how serious it was to go into the presence of God. There are all sorts of washings and rules because God is holy And for those who come near to him, he must be treated as holy. That's Leviticus 10. God is holy. And for those who draw near to him, he has to be treated as holy. And so maybe here is an application. If you don't feel near to God, it may be that you are trying to keep things with you that don't belong in his presence. If you you don't feel near to God, it might be, not necessarily, But it might be 
that you are trying to draw along with you into his presence things that don't belong there. And that's what James is getting at. Clean your hands. Purify your hearts. Because the one that you're drawing near to, he is holy. And he's to be treated as holy. But humility grieves over sin and puts sin away. And that leads us to this last two verses. Be wretched and mourn. These hit us weird because we're like, why in the world would God want us to be wretched and mourn and weep? And I do think this isn't just hyperbole. It's more of the contrast. Like if you, if you're one who's guilty of trying to draw near to God, bringing things with you that don't belong there, you need to stop laughing about your sin and you need to grieve over it. Don't laugh. Don't make light of the things that grieve the heart of God. If you could summarize what this is saying is don't laugh over things that grieve the heart of God. Don't make light of things that cause the Savior to have to bleed on the cross. Grief and mourning are appropriate emotions when we're confronted with our sin. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He says, whoever would be filled by the Spirit must judge his life for any hidden iniquities. He must expel from his heart everything that is out of accord with the character of God as revealed by the Holy Scriptures. There can be no tolerance of evil, no laughing off the things that God hates. If I could just say this out of love, like for all of us, like we cannot laugh at things that God hates. So at the very least, what the Lord's Supper allows us to do is to be serious about the ways that we continue to struggle with sin. To be soberly reminded of the, the consequence of our sin that took Jesus' very life and required his death as a payment for our guilt. James is saying, may your lightheartedness over sin be replaced with a heavy-hearted confession and repentance for that sin. Stop laughing at things that God hates. Stop trying to find joy in things that God says rob you of life. May your supposed gladness over your sin be replaced by gracious gloom. Because right, I've said this before from this pulpit many times. Like one of our chief problems, if not at the center of our problem, is men and women in our sin as we try to find life in places where only death is promised. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, if you're a Christian in this room, it's a way for us to reflect, to be reminded of the grace of God in Jesus, but to also take our sin seriously. To not take the grace of God for granted and to not laugh over things that grieve the heart of God and to confess with God, to God those things are wrong and repent, turn from them and that God would replace our lightheartedness over sin with a heavy-hearted confession and repentance. I don't want you to miss this. Like much like our speech and our pursuit of wisdom, growth in godliness is a process. You and I are in process from one degree to the next, being conformed into the image of Jesus. So you're not required 
perfection to come and draw near to God. In fact, the wonder of the Christian message is although you're imperfect, you can put on foreign perfection through faith in Jesus so you can come into the presence of God. But I want to give you a moment before we take the elements together. I want to give you a moment just to reflect, just quietly reflect. I'm going to take a minute and pray for all of us. And I want you to reflect. I want you to think about, are there areas in my life where the Spirit of God, I've just kind of kept at a distance. And maybe I'm toying around with sin in ways I shouldn't. Maybe I'm lighthearted over things that God is calling me to confess and repent of. Why don't you bow your heads with me and let's take a minute and just try to seriously apply these truths to our own hearts for a minute. God's Spirit, it's, it's good for us to ask for your help now that we are so easily deceived and our attention span is short and it's difficult for us to sit in silence and to consider our own hearts, our own lives. And so would you help us now? Help us now to examine our hearts in light of what we just heard from your word that we might align ourselves more closely to the word of God and the spirit within us Jesus, you have set us free. Your word says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and liberty from things that used to hold us captive. And so I pray that there would be a deep sense of relief and freedom that we get when we're confronted by our own sin, maybe even long-standing standing patterns of sin. When we're confronted by those things, I pray that we'd remember that you're, that you give a greater word, a greater grace than the word of our struggles and the depth of our darkness. God, you give more grace. Grace that not only saves us, but changes us. So would you change us? God, make us a people who find greater delight in you tomorrow than we, than we do today next week than we did this week and through the rest of our days as long as you give us breath I pray that we be a people who possess wisdom from above whose words are colored by the reality of heaven and that we be those who posture ourselves in a place of humility and not in pride help us now as we take communion and remembrance of the gospel to do it with a sense of sobriety as well as joy. In Jesus' name, amen.